Now, friends, I can't say when we come to the book of Nahum, as some folk now are kidding me about it, that every book I come to in every chapter, I say it's the greatest. Well, very candidly, I have to say that the little book of Nahum is not the greatest book in the Bible, but it's a great book, and it's in the Word of God for a very definite purpose. And I dare say that very few of you have ever heard a sermon from the little book of Nahum. I recognize that these that deal in wild utterances, prophecy mongers, as Sir Robert Anderson called them, use this to try to say that Nahum prophesied of the automobile when in the second chapter the chariots shall rage in the streets. Well, may I say that we'll see that when we come to it, that it has no reference to the automobile at all. But now what we do have in the little book of Nahum is a remarkable prophecy. And it seems very much out of date. To begin with, we know so little about Nahum. And then the thing he prophesies, he has just one theme, and that is the judgment of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And that's all that his prophecy is about. Now, how could that be meaningful to us today? How could that fit into our common and contemporary culture? Would it have a message for us? Well, the remarkable thing about the Word of God is that no matter where you turn in the Word of God, it's for us. Now, some is to us, but all of it is for us. That is, it has a message for us. So today, I want us, first of all, to get acquainted with Nahum the best that we can, and we can know something about him, by the way. Now, his name means comforter. The message that he gives is one of judgment, and you probably will immediately say, how in the world can Nahum live up to his name? How can he be a comforter? Well, it's owing to how you look at the judgment. If it's a judgment of your enemies, one that you're afraid of, one that dominates you, then may I say it can be a comfort to you. But his name means that just the same comforter. Now, he's identified here in verse 1, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, all that we're told about him here is that we have a burden of Nineveh, and the burden, as we've seen before, we had that in Isaiah, means judgment. It's the judgment of Nineveh. And then it's the vision of Nahum, and he's called an Elkoshite. Now, what do we know then about him? He's identified as an Elkoshite, and the next question is, who's an Elkoshite? Well, we know very little about the writer. Elkosh was a city in Assyria a few miles north of the ruins of Nineveh. Nahum could well have lived there and prophesied to Nineveh as Daniel did to Babylon later on. But very candidly, I don't think that is the thing that is true. And I think the content of the book 
reveals that he did not go to Nineveh. I don't think that he was there. He was never called to go there. Then another explanation that's offered is that there was a village by the name of Elkosh in Galilee. And Jerome recorded that a guide pointed out to him such a village as the birthplace of Nahum. And I've had that pointed out to me also when I was over there. But actually, the first time it was ever pointed out was a thousand years after Nahum lived. So that actually, that is largely traditional. Now, Dr. John Davis gives the meaning for Capernaum as the village of Nahum, Capernaum. Now, if Capernaum is a Hebrew word, then this is the evident origin, and we have no reason to believe otherwise. So this was the village of Nahum. He was either born there or he lived there as a boy. But also down in Judah, there was a place called Elkosh. It seems to have been a familiar place. You know, we have certain places in this country that you'll find one of them practically in every state, the same name. It will be a name that you have in California, you have it in Texas, you have it maybe up in Connecticut. And so evidently, Elkosh was a common name, and there was this village down in Judah. Now, it is the belief of a great many that what actually then happened was that he was probably born up in the northern kingdom, up in Israel. And that probably explains his great attachment for the northern kingdom. But that he moved down to Elkosh, a place that is actually in the south of Judah. And he probably went down there as a lad, and he was raised in the southern kingdom. Now, the man who wrote this evidently knew something about Sennacherib's attack upon Jerusalem, because it seems to be an eyewitness account. And we're going to see that even here in this first chapter, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invaded Judah during the reign of Hezekiah. Probably Nahum was an eyewitness at that time. And that would mean that Nahum would be a contemporary of both Isaiah and Micah. And it's the belief of some that that is accurate. I personally have not decided on any definite date at all. I have given this in my notes that many of you have, and I'm reading now dates are given anywhere from 720 to 636 B.C. by conservative scholars. It seems reasonable to locate him about 100 years after Jonah and about 100 years before the destruction of Nineveh, about 606 B.C. He probably lived during the reign of Hezekiah, and he saw the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel 
And he was greatly moved by that, of course. And so the theme of his message is the judgment of Nineveh. And that's all that it's about, by the way. Now, this man, he sounds the death knell of Nineveh, and he pronounces judgment by the total destruction on Assyria, Nineveh being the capital. Now, the thing that Nahum is going to maintain is that God was just in doing this. Now, you will recall that Jonah went to Nineveh with a message, and that was about 100 to 150 years before Nahum appeared on the scene. And actually, I like to look at the little book of Jonah and the little book of Nahum together. But the only thing is, when you're going through the Bible as we are, you've got Micah that comes between here. And since that is the way that it is arranged, we follow that arrangement. But I'd like to look at them together. Now, God told this man Jonah to go to Nineveh and to bring a message there. And a remarkable thing happened, as we saw. The entire city turned to God 100%. And frankly, there's been nothing quite like that in the history of the world. We just don't seem to have anything that could compare to that at all, that an entire city, 100%, turned to God. And how far-reaching it was in the nation, I don't know, but certainly the capital city had a tremendous effect upon the nation, and there was a great turning to God in that day. Now, the question would naturally arise, how did it work out? Did it last? Did this nation become a godly nation? And the answer is, no, they didn't. In time, the revival wore off. In time, they went back to their paganism. In time, they became as brutal as they were before. Now, this nation has had a message from God. Now, here comes along Nahum with a message. Now, why doesn't he go to Nineveh? And I don't think that he went to Nineveh at all. I believe that this man stayed in the southern kingdom. I don't think he left that. Now, if God sent Jonah, why did he not send Nahum? Well, God's methods vary, friends. God is certainly immutable. He never changes. But he does change his methods at times. Now, he sent this man Jonah because here's a great wicked city, but they were totally ignorant of God. And when the message was brought, the city turned to God all the way from the king on the throne to the peasant in the hovel. And as a result, God spared the city. Now, a hundred to a hundred and fifty years has gone by, and the city has relapsed and returned back to its old way. And why doesn't Nahum go? Well, because now they've already had the light, and they've rejected the light. And when light is rejected, it becomes what the Lord Jesus said. And it's this, if the light in you be darkness... How great is that darkness? Now, how can light be darkness in anyone? Well, light that is darkness is to refuse 
to accept the Word of God. There are more Bibles in this country than any other book. No book can touch it as far as the publishing of the Bible is concerned. Here is a nation that's had light. But what is the net result? If the light in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this nation had had light. God had sent a message to them. And for a while they turned and served the living and true God. It was a revival in the general sense of the term. And it was wonderful, but it didn't last. Now, isn't that really the history of revivals? France had a revolution. At that same time, why, England had a revival under the Wesleys in Whitfield. A great turning to God. But how did England make out? Well, go look at England today. At that time, they were first-rate nation. They were number one as the great nations of the world. But they're not number one today, and they're not even number two. They're not even number three. They're way down the list today. What happened? Well, they departed from the living and true God. And actually, the guide, the first time I was in England, I asked to be taken to the cemetery across from Wesley's church and where Wesley is buried at his church and where he was born. And the guide had difficulty. He and the driver talked it over, and they finally wound their way around through the streets in London. I don't know where all they went, but finally... We arrived at the place. They'd looked on the map, the city map, and they brought us. And the guide said to me, this is the first time I've ever brought anyone here. And he says, I think that we'll put it on our route. And when we take tours, we'll bring them here. He said, I didn't know it was here. They've forgotten John Wesley. They've forgotten the great revival that was under him. And as a result, England has sunk down to... I would say a very low level today in a nation that has had such a tremendous history in the past. It actually makes you weep. Those of us that have a background that takes our ancestors to somewhere in the British Isles, whether it be England or Wales or Scotland or Ireland, well, you just have to bow your head today in shame and feel like weeping when you think of the greatness of this nation and how at one time they listened to the voice of God. Well, now Nineveh is no longer listening. Nam says, I'm not going over. I'm not going to waste my time going over. No point in it. They have passed the place of no return. Now, the question arises, as this nation that you and I live in today, has it come to that. This little book has a message for us, friends. It was years ago that a United States senator, and I'm not able to tell you who it is, but I have the clipping here, and I'm going to read the clipping to you because this comes from a senator. And when they say anything that's godly, I always listen to it. And I don't have to listen very often, by the way. Now, will you listen to this? A United States senator has stated that the average life of the great civilizations of the world has been about 200 years. He goes on to say that these civilizations have progressed 
if that's the right word, through the following stages. Now, will you listen to this? From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness. From selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy back to bondage. Which of the above stages do you think we're in? How much longer is our civilization going to last? Now, since he made that statement, we are now after our 200th anniversary. Now, think of that for just a moment, the average life of a nation. Now, where are we today? Are we a nation of abundance? Well, that's true. However, the Lord's beginning to cut us short from abundance to selfishness and selfishness to complacency. Is that a picture of us today? And from complacency to apathy. Is that the apathetic condition of the nation today? Well, the next step, according to the senators, from apathy back to bondage. That is the picture that is given here. And that is the message of Nahum, a great world power, Assyria, Nineveh the captain had a message from God, turned to God, and served God over a period. How long, I don't know. But after a 100 to 150 years went by, they're right back where they were before. Now God's going to judge them. And since God's going to judge them, the question arises, is he right in doing it? And we're going to find out that he's not only right in doing it, but he's good when he does it. And you have here in the first eight verses of this first chapter of Nahum, the justice and the goodness of God demonstrated in his decision to destroy Nineveh and also to send a message out to the rest of the world. And that message is the gospel that's going out to the rest of the world today. And God still moves in the life of nations today. And this little book of Nahum, you may think it's a ho-hum book, that it's a pretty boring book, but it's just speaking right in where we are today. And it's speaking right in actually where the rubber meets the road. And we're running out of rubber, too, by the way. Now, friends, I'm going to break my pattern of saying we've come to the greatest book in the Bible. I've said that about everyone. But I'll break the pattern here and say that this is not the greatest book, but it's a great book, let me say that. And it has a real message for us. It gives the burden of Nineveh. And that burden, as we've seen before, means judgment. We saw that in Isaiah, the judgment of Nineveh, and the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. And we can't know too much about him, and yet we do know a great deal about this man. He was apparently born in the northern kingdom. That would be his native country. But he moved to the southern part of Judah, 
sometime when he was very young. And he had a great concern for the northern kingdom. And he apparently was alive when it was carried away into captivity into Assyria. And his message is the judgment that's coming on Nineveh. You see, this man Jonah brought a message to Nineveh that revealed the love of God. Well, this book reveals the justice of God. And the two go together. Though God will judge a nation, God is still love. And he still loves. You can't escape that. And the thing that makes the judgment of God actually so frightful is this, that God doesn't do it as a petulant person. He doesn't do it in a vindictive manner whatsoever. He doesn't do it in a spirit of revenge or trying to get even or because he got angry for a moment and it's an emotional outburst. God judges because he's just and he still loves, but he is just. And since he's just in his dealings, he has to deal with sin, even in the lives of those that he loves. And Nineveh was a city that God loved. He told Jonah that. Jonah wanted the city destroyed. And God says, shall I not save Nineveh, that great city? And the people that were in it, many of them little children. But now, friends, judgment is going to fall upon this great city. And the message is this, and I want to give you what I have now in my notes, and I'm reading from my notes. Nahum sounds the death knell of Nineveh and pronounces judgment by total destruction on Assyria. God was just in doing this. Jonah, almost a century before, in fact, the matter is, is, was probably a century and a half, had brought a message from God, and Nineveh had repented. However, the repentance was transitory, and God patiently gave this new generation opportunity to repent. We're going to see that in the message today. And the day of grace ends, and the moment of doom comes, that is something that you find over in the third chapter, verse 19. That's the last verse. He says, There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the report of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. In other words, They had come to a place where there's no healing for them. Now, I believe that for a nation and for an individual that it is possible to continue in sin and to keep on continuing in sin and you cross over a mark. And I don't know where it is. I don't pretend to be able to say when it takes place. But there is a place And when you pass over that, it's not that the grace of God can't reach you, but you can't reach God for the simple reason that you pass to the place where you are hardened and you are in a state of unbelief. 
that cannot be changed. And that is true of a nation. It's true of an individual. Now, Assyria had served God's purpose and would be destroyed. You see, as you look about you today, you're apt to be disturbed. There's no question about that. God's people, I'm sure, are disturbed. And the reason, I think, for the interest that we've had in prophecy and the wilder the prophecy teachers are, the more popular they seem to be today. And we've got them coming up with all kinds of interpretations. Well, the explanation is God's people, ignorant of the Word of God, they're desperately reaching out because of the things that are happening. The Lord himself said men's hearts will be failing them when they see those things coming on the earth. Well, we're at that stage for sure. We've come into that particular orbit today, and these things are disturbing to us. But my friend, let's understand that God is still running the thing. He's still in charge. It hasn't slipped out from his hands. God is not biting his fingernails, and he hasn't slipped to the edge of his throne. He's not nervous today about what's happening. God is carrying out his plan and purpose, and he's overruling the sin of man. That makes it very comforting, by the way, should be to the child of God today. Now, Assyria had served God's purpose and would be destroyed. And the destruction of Nineveh, according to the details which are given in this written prophecy, is almost breathtaking. This is a message, you see, of comfort to a people who live in fear of a powerful and godless nation. God will destroy any godless nation. Now, all you have to do is to pick up your history book and you go back and begin with the time of the writing of history. And you will find out that every great world power went down. And it went down at a time when they were given over to wine, women, and song. When they reach that place, then you can be sure of one thing, they're on the skids. And they'll soon pass out into the limbo of the loss. And that's where the great nations of the world are today. And where are we? Well, as we said last time, we're on the way down. It's a nice ride while we're having it. Dr. Machen said years ago, America is today going downhill with a godly ancestry. America that has had a godly ancestry is going downhill on the toboggan. And he says, God pity America when we reach the bottom of the hill. Well, how close are we to the bottom of the hill? That's the question, and I'm no prophet or the son of a prophet, just a poor preacher, and all I can say is, seems to me like we're getting very close to the bottom of the hill. Now, that is the reason that this prophecy here is such a remarkable prophecy that we have, because it speaks right into our own local situation today. Now, again, may I say that we have in the first chapter, the first eight verses, we have justice and the goodness of God. Then from verse 9 through the rest of the chapter, verse 16, we have the justice and goodness of God 
demonstrated in the decision to destroy Nineveh and to give the gospel. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the justice and goodness of God exhibited in execution of his decision to destroy Nineveh. So that you have the annihilation of Assyria in chapter 2 and the avenging action of God justified in chapter 3. Now, with that in mind, let's move again right through the first verse on down. The burden of Nineveh, the judgment of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, verse 2, God is jealous, and the Lord avengeth. The Lord avengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemy. Now, jealous means, according to Webster's Dictionary, and this is the definition, exacting, exclusive devotion. God is a jealous God. Now, God demands that his people worship him alone. And when any people it doesn't make any difference who they are, turn to idolatry or turn to sin, that which is contrary to God, and give themselves to it. God is jealous. Now, I hear folks say today, well, it's just a little bit different, the jealousy of God and the jealousy of man. Well, it's not as much difference as you think there is. Let me just turn and read Exodus, the 20th chapter Verse 3 through 6, will you listen to this? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, God loves you. It doesn't make any difference who you are. You can't keep him from loving you. You can get into a place where you won't experience the love of God, when you put up an umbrella of sin, the sunshine of God's love sure won't fall on you. But it's still there for you. And you can put up the umbrella of indifference. You can put up the umbrella of turning your back upon him and not doing his will. There are several umbrellas you can put up to keep the love of God from shining upon you. But you can't keep him from loving you. God loves you. And since he loves you, he's jealous of you. And that means that he wants you. God actually doesn't want what you've got. Those of us that are preachers are always asking. I wish that on this radio program I didn't even have to mention it. I don't like to, and we never ask the unsaved to give. And if God's people would just give, you'd never hear me mention it, just enough to pay for the radio. But God doesn't want what you've got. He wants you. And He's jealous when you give yourself and your time and your substance to other things. 
when you give it to sin. God is jealous. And it's the same way I heard a woman once say, she says, you know, I have a very wonderful husband. He's not jealous of me. Well, I don't think he was such a wonderful husband. Well, maybe he didn't have any cause to be jealous. However, the woman was not a bad-looking woman by any means. But I don't think that's a compliment at all. We're living in a day when people are to be broad-minded, especially about this matter of sex, that it's all right to give yourself to the first one that comes along. May I say to you, my friend, if you're that type of a woman, you'll never get a good husband, I'll tell you that, because the good husband is one that's going to want you and love you and want you above everything else, and he won't want to share you with anybody. When you say you don't have a jealous husband, I feel sorry for you because you don't have a good relationship. I can tell you that. And God very frankly says, I'm a jealous God. I want you. I don't want to share you with the sin of the world and with the devil's crowd and with idolatry. I don't want to share you. I want you to belong to me. That is the thing. And there's nothing wrong with God saying God's jealous. That's what Nahum says. God is jealous. I'm glad he is. And any good husband or any good wife, she says, I don't want to share my husband with anybody else. He's mine. He belongs to me. That's something that's pretty important today that this world's forgotten about. No wonder in Southern California that now our divorces run ahead of our marriages, of course. We're playing a little game. Of course, you used to find the harlots in the brothels, but it's called consecutive harlotry today. You just take one at a time and live with him a little while at a time. It adds up, though, to the same thing. Because, my friend, if you're going to be loved, and if you love, there'll be jealousy there. Has to be, if it's real. Now, God is jealous and the Lord avenge it. Now, it's not revenge it as it is in our authorized version. It's avenge. And there's all the difference in the world. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God says to you and me, don't you indulge in it. Because to begin with, you will never exercise it in the right way. You turn it over to me. God says, I handle it without any heat of anger. I handle it in justice, and I will do the right thing, and I know all the issues and the side issues, and I know everything about it. Therefore, God says that he avenges, and the Lord avenges. And friends, whether we like it or not, maybe you won't like it today, anything God does is right. Now, when you and I get that fixed in our minds, and then on the other end of the stick, that you and I are just little creatures, and we really don't know very much. Even the smartest ones don't. Frankly, I hate to say this, but I've quit listening to newscasts and these programs where they interview some egghead that's supposed to know something. I've discovered that most of these today, as far as knowing what's really going on in this world, they're really ignoramuses, and they're just talking. May I say to you, you and I today 
ought to recognize that we don't know much. And that God, whatever he does, whatever God does, it's right. And you say, well, I don't think so. Well, then you are wrong. God's not wrong. You are wrong. I wonder if you're willing to take that position. If you're not, my friend, you're in trouble as far as God is concerned, because you know there are a lot of things he's not going to tell you about. There are many things he's not going to tell you of me. He's just going to go ahead and do them. And he's running this universe his way. Oh, I know that we get a few little power-hungry human beings, but they don't hang around long. Hitler didn't last long. Mussolini didn't. Stalin didn't. They didn't last long. The others that are on the front page today, they'll be in obituary notice in a few days. Won't be long. May I say to you, friends, that God is still on the throne and he's still running things. Now, will you notice? And it says, and he is furious. God doesn't take any delight today in the sin of man. God hates sin. He's furious at it. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. And God is glorified, as we have in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel. God is glorified when he judges a nation, by the way. God is glorified. When Assyria went down, God is glorified in that. The brutal nation hated a sinful nation, and God brought them down to wreck and to ruin and into the debris and dust of the earth. And God is glorified when he does things like that. Maybe you don't like it, but the Word of God says that's the way that he moves. And I would suggest that you get reconciled to the way God does things because that's the way they're going to be done. Now, he put down here in verse 3 a great principle by which God did not only judge Assyria and Nineveh, the capital in particular, but this is the way that God judges the world and will judge the world in the future. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, the Lord is slow to anger. That is something Nahum makes very clear. You see, God sent Jonah into Nineveh to tell them that Nineveh was to be destroyed because of its awful sin. They were known as probably the most brutal people in the ancient world. And God said that judgment would come. But these people, the entire city of Nineveh, repented and turned to God. And obviously, it penetrated the entire empire. And there was a great change. We would say a great revival broke out. Now, that didn't last very long. And it's been characteristic of the great waves of revivals that have come. They've never lasted permanently. There's never been a permanent revival yet. The Wesley Revival, it had tremendous impact upon England and this country and the side effects upon other nations. But it was for a brief duration. There's been a carryover, of course, of it even down to the present hour. And the great Moody 
revivals, when actually an entire city would be moved in that day toward God. Well, this is the thing that God has done in the past. He seems to continue to do it, but he's slow to anger. So this great city turned back. And a hundred years later, after Jonah, Nahum comes and says, well, now the clock is struck. It's twelve. And time has run out. There is no longer delay. Judgment is coming. And why? Well, he says here, and God will not at all acquit the wicked. You see, the forgiveness of God is different than our forgiveness. And I must repeat this. When somebody does us wrong, we say, I forgive you. And that's it. Penalty has not been paid or anything. It's generally for something that may be just a trifle, or it could be a matter of some importance. But when God forgives, the penalty has already been paid. Because you see, God is the judge of this earth. He is not only its creator, he not only is running it, but he's the moral ruler of this universe. And you see, God is not a crooked judge. You can't slip something under the table to him and get him to let you off easy. And you can't tell him that you belong to a certain family and that your father is very influential and he'll be able to get you off. Or you cannot say that you are very wealthy and that you will get the judge's job, or you can pay him just a little extra to be lenient on you. You can't deal with God like that. God must judge the wicked. And all of us are told that the heart is desperately wicked. Not just a little wicked, but desperately wicked. And you and I don't know, really, the depth of the iniquity that's in our hearts, what we're capable of. Now, God can acquit us. Therefore, if we are going to be acquitted, someone must pay the penalty. That's the reason that he's provided a Redeemer. Now, when an individual or a nation turns its back upon God's redemption that's provided now in Christ, then judgment must follow. There's no other alternative. Because now he closes out by saying that God controls the storms. Mother Nature doesn't have really much to do with it. Mother Nature does what he tells Mother Nature to do. And so in verse 4, I read now, "...he rebuketh the sea, and he maketh it dry, and he drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth." and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. Now, these are the three fertile areas in that land, the valley of Bashan and Carmel. And Carmel would be the valley that actually has Dralen, or Megiddo is the city that's there. This is today one of the most fertile spots on top side of the earth. And then when you go farther north, I've driven several times along the coast of Lebanon all the way from Beirut down to 
where you have the ruins of old Tyre. And that is beautiful country. You can see in the spring of the year, the fruit trees blooming, and in the distance, the anti-Lebanon's covered with snow. I have many pictures that I made there. The fruit trees, the apricots, the peaches, and they grow everything in that area. It's very fertile. Now, a drought, you see, would come. And I'm sure that there are many of you that remember the dust storms in this country. I always felt that they were a judgment from God. If there had been any kind of a revival at that time, I'm sure we'd never have had to fight World War II, nor would we have been involved in everything since then. But unfortunately, it carried no message at that time for this country. Now, at verse 5, we read, "...the mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell in it." He's the Creator, and he's also the preserver of this universe. He's the one who holds it together. And you can hold him responsible for anything that takes place for the floods that come, for the earthquakes that come. But don't hold him responsible for the people that are killed at that time because man has been given an intelligence that tells him that he ought not to build down too close to the river because the flood may come. Maybe those of us that are living here in Southern California ought to listen to him. We are told that an earthquake is coming And that is probably true. We're in a great earthquake fault. The San Andreas Fault runs right close to where I live. Now, if an earthquake came and I had a loved one that was slain by it, am I going to cry out to God and say to him, you are the one that killed him? No, God is not responsible. We'd be responsible. Probably we ought to move to another location. But very frankly, my entire family... We like Southern California because we're going to stay right here and take the chance. But what I'm trying to get over is God does control nature. But you can't say that he is to blame when these great tragedies take place. Man is responsible for them. He ought to stay away from getting too close to the river, and he ought to stay away from where he knows where there are going to be earthquakes. Now listen to verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now, man has learned that you can't stand up against nature. Victor Hugo wrote three great novels. He wrote Les Miserables to show that society is the enemy of man. He wrote Notre Dame to show that religion is the enemy of man. And he wrote Toilers of the Sea to show that nature is the enemy of man. Well, it's owing to how man approaches all of these Religion has been an enemy of man, and society is the enemy of man. This civilization today is no friend of grace, I can assure you that. 
And nature can be an enemy of man, but nature can also be a friend of man. But the question is this, if you are going to try to fight against nature, you're fighting a losing battle. That's what Victor Hugo tried to show in his novel. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Do you have the answer to that question? And I'd like to ask that of you if you're unsaved today. Maybe you're depending on your own righteousness and goodness. Do you really believe that you can stand in the presence of a holy God, that absolutely he hates sin, he intends to judge sin? Are you able to stand in his holy presence? That's the reason that that very brilliant Oxford Don, C.S. Lewis, wrote about a bus trip that they ran from hell. Now, this is really a mythological bus trip, and there's no Bible bus either. And it was a tour that was carried on from hell to heaven, and those that were in hell could take a bus trip up there to heaven. And the bus was filled, and when they arrived in heaven, the bus driver parked in the parking lot, and I'm sure there's plenty of parking up there. And so he told everybody on the bus, he says, now four o'clock this afternoon, why the bus is going to leave, and the bus is going to head for home, which happened to be hell. And at four o'clock that afternoon, why that bus was filled, everyone was back. But the bus driver told them, if you want to stay, you can stay. And why didn't they stay? Lewis said, they found out that they had no place in heaven and that, as one of the great saints of the past put it, he said, I would rather go to hell without sin than go to heaven with sin. Who is able to stand before his indignation? If you don't have a Savior, how are you going to stand as a sinner in the presence of a holy God? Do you think that you've got a chance? You don't have a ghost of a chance, my friend. You can't stand there without a Savior. And that's what it means to be accepted in the Beloved and to be in Christ today. This is a tremendous principle that he's putting down here. God must judge sin. There's something radically wrong with God if he doesn't judge sin someday. We'll go on from there next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, verse 7, the Lord is good. And let's keep that in mind. You remember the psalmist said, the Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And... If the redeemed don't say so, nobody's going to say so. So I'm going to say so. God is good. God is good, friend. That's wonderful to know. I don't know who you are, where you are, how you are. But wherever you are, God today loves you. And God wants to save you. And if you're not saved just because you won't come to him because he can save you and he will save you. God's good. That's an axiom of Scripture, and it's an axiom of life. The Lord is good, 
and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Are you having any trouble? Well, if you want to get to a good shelter, the Lord is that shelter. And he knoweth those who trust in him. I'm very happy that I'm not going to get lost in the shuffle. I won't get lost in the multitude. I sometimes in this day, as we see the increase of the population throughout the world, and as I go from city to city at times, I think my everybody's moved to the West Coast. And I get on one of these freeways, and I think, my, the people there are. And then I go back to Dallas, Texas, and I said, I thought everybody had gone to California, but here they all are, followed me here to Dallas, because the crowds are everywhere. Then I go all the way down to Florida, or I go to Buffalo, New York, or to New York City, and they followed me there, because you've never seen such crowds in your life. And then I say, well, I'm going to Europe, and they're over there. And you go to the Orient, and I tell you, the multitudes that are there, it almost shocks you. You look into Egypt, you go into some of the Arab countries, go into Turkey, there are multitudes. And I think, well, my, I hope the Lord remembers my name is Vernon McGee and that I trusted him, and I'm very happy that the Scripture says, he knoweth those who trust in him. He doesn't have to have an IBM machine to record your name. Actually, he's got you written on his heart. He's written your name on the palms of his hands. He knows you. He knows those who've trusted him. Verse 8, But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Now, this raises a question here about hell and whether the place of permanent punishment, the place that actually is the lake of fire, whether it's literal fire or not. Now, I'm going to deal with this completely when I get to the book of Revelation where it's mentioned, and that won't be too long from now. But may I say this at this time, there is more said about darkness being the lot of the lost than fire. Darkness, here it's mentioned, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. And then you remember the Lord Jesus even used the term, they shall be cast into outer darkness. And I don't know about you, fire could only affect the physical, never the spiritual. All oh, the fires of a conscience that's been suddenly alerted to the awful thing they did in rejecting Christ and the things they should have done and did not do. And think of the darkness of a lost eternity, of not being able to see where you're going at all. May I say to you, darkness to me, is a better description of hell than fire is. That may be a new thought for some folk today, but pursue it in the Word of God. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll deal with this thoroughly. And by the way, at verse 9, we come now to the justice and goodness of God 
demonstrated in his decision to destroy Nineveh and to give the gospel. Will you listen to this? What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. In other words, they'll not be given a second chance. They've had their last chance. They've crossed over a line, that invisible line that I do not know where it is, but it's somewhere out there that you can step over it in your rejection of God. And it doesn't mean the grace of God couldn't reach you, but it means you can't reach the grace of God at that particular point. And verse 10, "...for while they are entangled together like thorns, and while they are drunk like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dry." And I would say this especially today to young people. Make your decision for Christ while you're young and you have a sharp mind. Because you can keep playing around even with intellectualism today, which I tried in college and almost got detoured. And you can play around, as many are doing today, with drugs and alcohol. And you can, as Nahum says, the day will come when you'll stumble around like a drunkard. And if you stumble around like a drunkard, you can't make a decision. A man called me from back east. I wouldn't talk with him. I told him, I said, you're drinking. And he said, yes. And I said, you're drunk. He said, yes. Well, I said, the liquor's speaking, not you. When you are willing to sober up and call me, I'll be glad to talk with you. But I will not talk to liquor. May I say to you, they at that day had reached the place where they could make no decision. Now, the point that Nahum is going to make and the contribution that he's going to give with the other minor prophets to God's philosophy of government and his manner of dealing with individuals and with nations is just simply this, that whether you believe it or not, or whether you can understand it or not, and that applies to me also, of course, that God is just and God is good when he judges a nation or an individual. God is still a God of love. And God loves the lost. And he is, as John told us, the propitiation. He is the mercy seat for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Men are lost because they are sinners. And they're saved because they accept the overture of salvation that God extends to them. And God will get that invitation to any individual on top side of this earth that will accept it. And I have come to believe that we may see actually uh, turning to God today. I don't mean in great numbers, but I mean there'll be a turning to God given to every people on top side of this earth. And it looks to me like now radio might be that means so that we're in this section where he's going to be very extreme in what he's going to say. God is going to judge Nineveh. And he is just in doing it and righteous. We can understand that. But 
God is love also. And this is actually an act of the love of God. Now, that's very difficult for us to comprehend, but it is absolutely true. Now, we come here to where he mentions the fact in verse 11 that there is coming up against Israel this enemy, and the enemy is Assyria, coming from Nineveh. And in verse 11, we are told who it is. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And I think there is agreement among all conservative Bible expositors that the invader that is spoken of here and called a wicked counselor is Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And you will recall that when we were dealing with this, especially in Isaiah, the 36th and 37th chapters, and I'm not going to turn back to that, but I called attention to the fact that it actually was recorded three times. It was recorded in the book of Kings, and it was in Second Kings, the 18th chapter, and not only in Second Kings, but we find here in this particular section that it's in Second Chronicles, the 29th and 30th chapters, and it's also in Isaiah. And the thing I called attention to at the time, you'll recall, was that when God says it three times, we ought to stop, look, and listen, because that's what it means. When he says it once, that would be enough. But when he says it twice, and you remember sometimes he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Well, that's extra important. But when he repeats something three times, then you can just put it down that that's all important. Now, what Nahum is doing here is referring to the fact that that would come up against Jerusalem, a wicked counselor. And the story was that he sent Rabshakeh with that great army of Assyria. And you will recall that he threatened Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was absolutely frightened to death by it all. I think that the poor man couldn't sleep at night during that period that he was being threatened. And he went in the temple, though, and called upon God and Isaiah brought the message that he won't even shoot an arrow into the city. Well, he had to withdraw because of the campaign against Egypt, and Sennacherib needed his reinforcement. But then God destroyed the army of the Assyrians. And that's exactly now what Nahum is saying is going to happen. Because, you see, Assyria, during the period of Nahum, took the northern kingdom into captivity, and they dealt with them in a very brutal manner. Now, notice what God says here in verse 12, and this is quite a remarkable verse, and we don't want to miss the point that is here. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Now, what is it that God is saying here? Because as far as I'm concerned, this expression, though they be quiet and likewise many, it just doesn't make sense to me. I do not understand what he's talking about. Now, I want to show you here 
how archaeology has confirmed many things in the Scripture that we do not know or would not have known, and also it reveals the accuracy of the Word of God. And I would like to read to you now a note that is in the New Schofield Reference Bible. Now, there's some of you folk, because I have disagreed with several changes that the New Schofield Bible has made, they feel like that I don't recommend it. Now, may I say this to you, that it's the best reference Bible that you can get today. I'm beginning now to use this New Schofield reference. I really can't get weaned away from my old one. I have it right here in front of me, and I have my new one in front of me, because I'm acquainted with the old one, and it suited me fine. But actually, the New Schofield reference, for any of you that are new Christians and want to get started studying the Bible, I suggest you get a New Schofield reference Bible. And I'm not disturbed today by the critics who are finding fault with it. Now, when they come up with a better reference Bible, then I'm going to recommend theirs. But so far, all they've done is criticize. They have not turned up a good reference Bible at all. In fact, one or two that have come out from liberal sources are, to my mind, very anemic, very weak, very unscholarly, and very unacceptable and I would not recommend them. I do recommend this, though the men that were the editors of the new reference, I never knew many of the men of the old Schofield Reference Bible, but I know practically all of the men, or at least most of them, of the new one. And I want to say this, all of them are just as human as you and I are. Very human, they're subject to mistakes, and not one of them, as far as I know, ever felt that their notes were inspired. In fact, the matter is, several of these men are very humble about it and would tell you offhand that they are not inspired. But you know, every now and then, they really put in a good note, and that's the reason you should have it. I'm going to read their note on this verse here about this expression, though they be quite and likewise many, because I would never have known had they not told me what it means. So let me read this for you today. And I'm reading now. In the context, the expression, quite and likewise many, although a literal translation of the Hebrew, does not seem to make much sense. And I sure have to agree with that. Actually, the Hebrew here represents a transliteration of a long-forgotten Assyrian legal formula, excavation in the ruins of ancient Nineveh, buried since 612 B.C., has brought to light thousands of ancient Assyrian tablets, dozens of which contain this Assyrian legal formula. Now, you see what God is doing. He's picked up a legal formula of the Assyrians so they'd understand what he was talking about to them, for that's who he's talking about here. It proves on investigation to indicate joint and several responsibility for carrying out an obligation. Nahum quotes the Lord as using the Assyrian formula in speaking to the Assyrians, saying, in effect, 
even though your entire nation joins as one person to resist me, nevertheless, I shall overcome you. So you see that when you put it in light of what we know today, God was saying something that made sense to the Assyrians, and it doesn't make sense to us today. Now, this reveals something. Now, I'm going to finish the note now that's in this New Schofield Reference Bible. As the words would have been equally incomprehensible to the later Hebrew copyist, their retention is striking evidence of the care of the scribes in copying exactly what they found in the manuscripts and testifies to God's providential preservation of the biblical text. Now, when the Hebrew scholars came along later on, they didn't know what this meant either. But they translated it literally. Why? Because they believed in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. And thank God for that. Now, that leads me to say this. That's one of the reasons I can't buy a lot of these so-called modern translations. They are not translations at all, because many of them were done by men who do not believe that this is the Word of God. Others, although they believed it was the Word of God, they wanted to put it into a form that modern man could understand. May I say to you that I rather disagree with that method. And I'm very happy that one of these translations, it says a paraphrase text. And I would say this concerning it, the Living Bible, that it is a bad translation, but it's a marvelous paraphrase text. And if you'll treat it as that, then fine. But don't believe that you're getting the literal text of Scripture. And this passage here reveals that, that though you might not understand it, God says, you put it down like I have given it to you, and you'll find out someday what it means. That is, if you'll work hard enough and study it hard enough. And the trouble of it is, we're trying to make the Word of God like pablum, and we're trying to spoon-feed a bunch of babies today that are too lazy to really study the Word of God. And my feeling is, although I certainly am at least accused of making it simple, and I try to make it simple, but the point is that I believe today that there ought to be a real reverence for the text of Scripture. And I'm no Bible worshiper. I'm no bibliophile by any means. But I do believe that there should be a reverence for the text of Scripture. Now, I spent time on that because that expression that I don't understand. Now, with archaeology digging up, and it's done a great deal of work yonder at the ancient city of Nineveh, and many of you ought to have my book on Jonah because it goes with this, and I tell about how the ruins of Nineveh were found, the tell that was across from old Musal, the modern city, and how back in the last century the excavations were made. And the book of Jonah tells of the great revival a hundred years before God gave this, or maybe even 150 years. God now says there's no hope for the people. So he didn't send Nahum over with the message as he did Jonah. Now will you notice verse 13? 
For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. Now, that seemed impossible in that day when Nahum wrote this, because this nation was to continue to go for a long time after this. But God says, I'm going to break the yoke of this nation. And now, that's not all he said. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the carved image and the melted image, and I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Now, God says to Nineveh, and this is harsh, God says that I'm going to bury you. You see, Khrushchev wasn't the first one who used that expression. He said that about us, that is, our nation, and it seemed very terrifying to us, and naturally it would be, and we thought it was a terrible expression. But actually, Khrushchev was being biblical, but he didn't know it. That is, he was using a biblical expression. God said to Nineveh, I'm going to bury you. And when I bury you, you'll go out of business as a nation. And believe me, when was the last time you've seen an Assyrian running around? They're just not running around today. And they have no nation today. God says, I'll bury you. And he did do that. He also said, I'm going to get rid of your gods, that is, idolatry. And it was the Medians that came first, the Media Babylonians, that came and destroyed this city of Nineveh. And we'll deal with that next time. But actually, the idolatry was destroyed by the Medians because they were a monotheistic people and did not worship idols. And they really were iconoclasts. They really broke up idolatry as far as Assyria was concerned when they destroyed the city. Now, verse 15, the last verse is an amazing verse. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Now, God is saying here through Nahum, he said to these people, don't leave me, don't withdraw from the Mosaic system, don't give it up, for the very simple reason that I intend to destroy your enemy, and I'm going to send to you the Messiah, and he'll bring tidings of good joy. Now, this is quoted here by Nahum referring to Assyria. Now, you will find that Isaiah used actually the same expression. You go over to Isaiah 52, 7, and it's amplified there. And I'm reading now, "...how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now, that is spoken of in reference to Babylon. God says, I'll destroy Babylon. And Isaiah's writing to the southern kingdom. Nahum, writing to the northern kingdom, says the same thing. And then notice what Paul does in Romans. He takes this quotation. I really think Nahum was the first to use it, and he referred to Assyria, and Isaiah referred to Babylon. And notice what Paul says in Romans 
the tenth chapter, verse 13. And I'm reading now this section. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, actually, this is quoted from Isaiah, and Paul is making a different application of it. But you must remember, this is the section that refers to Israel. This is the dispensational section of Romans, that God's not through with the nation Israel, and that for the future there will come the good tidings of great joy. Now, it has worldwide application. It has application for today, and that's what Paul is doing, using it in that connection, that now good tidings, and that's the message that we're giving out today, the message of the gospel of Christ, and that's to go out to the ends of the earth. And it applies in the future to the nation Israel. This is a marvelous way that the Spirit of God uses the Scripture. And next time, we're going to see another way that Nahum shows us, and you'll get the best system of the interpretation of the Word of God. That is, you get a course in hermeneutics, when you read the little book of Nahum, he'll tell you how to interpret the Word of God. And we've already had two here today. You take it literally, whether you understand it or not. There is an explanation for it. The trouble's not with the Word of God, the trouble's with us. And then we can understand that God made application of this Scripture to one nation at one time, to another nation at another time, and now it has a worldwide application today.